Thank you, Anne. And so we come back today to my alternate series of sermons of this part of the year on the Song of Songs in the Old Testament. If you want to know more about why we're looking at this particular book um, and what we've got out of it so far, you can always go back and watch or listen to previous sermons or services. Um, but today we're going to look at this passage today from chapter 5. Now, you might know one of the enduring ideas that we have in romantic stories uh, is the idea of the one. Have you ever heard this story, this idea, the one? You know perhaps what this is. It's the idea that somewhere out in the world is this one perfect person just for you, whom you're meant to be with, your soulmate. And so if your relationships that you're currently in don't work out, maybe it's because the person that you're with is not the one. Uh, and when you find the one, everything will be great. You know, the, the one is special. The one, they have everything you need. And if you find them, your life will be complete. Now, how realistic you think this idea is may depend on your own experience of relationships uh, throughout your life. But I think in the Song of Songs today, we read about this woman describing her lover as the one and why she knows that he is this one. Now, she's obviously been talking about him quite a bit because her friend, in verse 9, we hear her friends challenge her to tell them, why is he really better than everyone else? Why is he the one? Why is he so special? So she tells them, and I think you'd agree, she lays it on pretty thick. Um, he's basically the most amazing guy ever. Uh, um, and in doing that, uh, she gives a description of his appearance that may just strike us as a bit weird. So, does this sound attractive to you? His head is made of gold. His eyes look like doves that are somehow being washed in milk, which I'm not clear what that means. He has cheeks that look like a, a spice garden bed. Um, he has golden arms with jewels in them, and there are marble pillars that his legs have, but they've got gold feet on the end of them. Um, and he looks overall a bit like Lebanon, she says, you know. Now, that, look, I've got to say, that's a compliment that men love to receive. <laughs> Darling, you look quite a lot like the country of Lebanon today. <laughs> so just keep that in mind. Um, so if you were to draw this out on a paper to get a sense of what this man looks like, it would be looked pretty strange, wouldn't it? Very foolish. So, and it's the same with the description that he makes of her in other parts of the poem. So he says things like, your hair is like a flock of goats. Now, when I think of lustrous hair, I don't immediately think of a flock of goats running down a hill. But, of course, now, it's, it is funny, but in this type of poetry from this culture, the metaphors that are used, so you know when you read it, they're not meant to be taken visually. So the metaphors and what we're meant to do is we're to take the nice associations that we have with each of these metaphors or pictures and associate that with the person. Somehow that person is like the nice things that we're talking about. So his eyes don't literally look like doves. They're gentle eyes. She's saying you're pure. Um, his body isn't made of gold, it doesn't even really look like gold, but it's strong and it's bright and it's precious to her. And I think the key phrase is the first one, I think, where she says, My beloved is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. She says this. Now, it's entirely impossible, of course, and likely that her man looks just like any other ordinary bloke. Um, or like just any normal, maybe nice looking young man, and we would walk past him in the street without paying any attention at all. But no, she tells her friends, if you saw him the way that I do, 
you would see this godlike figure of incredible radiance and attractiveness. So this is really the language of love, isn't it? It's something that makes her see him as though he really is the most amazing man in the world, better than 10,000 others that you might name. So just that's setting the scene for today. We've been looking at the Song of Songs as a whole, just to remind you, to find out what it gives us in the way of understanding our experience of God, that's why it's in the Bible, and how we have spiritual awareness of God's presence in our lives. And I think the main point for us today as we look at this particular part of Song of Songs is to understand this point about love that the woman's making, what it does to our perception of other people. So what love does like this, it takes ordinary people and puts a kind of filter over them makes them appear glorious and radiant so that we're captivated by them. And the most over-the-top description doesn't seem unrealistic to us at the time. That's the kind of enchantment of love. And I think we can see, if we broaden our perspective on this, that it does have spiritual significance for understanding our experience of God and the world. Because it seems clear to me that, actually, in the view of the Bible and of the Christian faith, it is actually the woman in this poem who is the clear-sighted, sane person in her view of her lover. And it's her friends that are the ones that are missing the point. This is the opposite, of course, of our natural interpretation because we know she's probably not seeing this man clearly. She's just fallen in love. We can tell she's being unrealistic. The love hormones have taken over her brain. Um, you know, I had a friend at high school uh, who was very much like this. It was quite amusing to us. Over the years, he tended to fall in love with one girl after another. And they were all, oh, Andrew, the most beautiful woman in the world. You've never seen anyone. It's so amazing. Well, one after the other. They're all the most beautiful woman in the world. Um, he was easily enchanted. But I think still that the Bible teaches us that this kind of unrealistic viewpoint that love gives to someone. It's actually a sign of the viewpoint that we're, we're called as Christians to have of everyone and everything in the world that God's made. The idea that the things and the people that appear to us to be ordinary, boring and mundane are actually radiant and glorious things that are filled with the presence of God. That is their true reality. I want to take you now to the New Testament, to an important story in the Gospels. This is an event called the Transfiguration of Jesus. If you look at Luke chapter 9, 28 to 36. So let me read to you from that book. About eight days after Jesus said this, he says the kingdom will come, he took Peter, John and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which we, he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While, they, while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and didn't tell anyone at the time what they had seen. 
So that's the story of the transfiguration. In this situation, the disciples of Jesus saw the glory of God that was within Jesus. The appearance of the brightness and the light that they saw. And I, I think that the best interpretation of this event is not that Jesus somehow switched on like a light when you flick the switch, but that the disciples of Jesus were given for a little while the ability to see the glory of Jesus that was always there. This is called transfiguration because it's a change in the form or the figure of how someone appears to us when it happens. When someone is transfigured, a new element of their life and reality is unveiled or revealed in them. And there are a number of other times in the Bible where this happens. So, for instance, in the book of Acts, when Stephen, the first martyr of the church, when he's arrested and put on trial, it says that people remark he has this angelic, glorious, shining appearance in his face. I think what this shows is that there is an element in reality which we're sometimes able to perceive or which becomes clear to us at certain times, which is the bright and glorious presence of the Spirit of God dwelling within someone and upon someone to such an extent that it's apparent to those who have the capacity to see it. And I think this transfiguration then, to bring us back, is the, is the reality to which the love poetry of the Song of Songs is pointing. When the woman says, my beloved is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000, she's making a spiritual point. When we are in love with someone, they appear to us to be more than an ordinary person. They appear to be glorious. And this is an image of the reality of the transfiguration by the spirit that Jesus brings. That's what I believe. Love adds a radiance to people and to the creation and this transfiguration itself is not a psychological feeling or emotion that we have. It is an actual objective reality that God has put on his world. And it's a very, I think this is a very important issue for Christians today to grapple with because it can change how we view the world that we live in and what we do in it and how we treat people. It's often been remarked um, that our society is one in which there's this process of what we call disenchantment of the world has happened in the last couple of hundred years in particular. So we know that in general, traditional societies have tended to have what we call an enchanted or sacred view of the world, that seeing particular plants, animals, people and places as special or powerful to be respected and to be revered because of the presence of God in them. Our view, I speak generally, of course, on the other hand, in our culture, has on the whole become very industrial, mechanical and material in how we see the world. Um, we see the world often as a set of resources to be mined and to be consumed for our, our pleasure. And we often see people in the same way, as units who can do productive work for economic benefit or as smart monkeys or living machines we're trained from birth to see the world as empty of spiritual significance. Um, and the fact is, I think that in our culture, one of the few paths that we still have available to us to see the enchantment of the world is through romantic love and the experience that it brings. Because the power of the emotions involved breaks through our defences and makes us see glory again, in, an, in a one particular person at least. Now, I believe that another interesting way that we access that experience is, funnily enough, through the kind of stories that we like to tell each other. I don't think it's all unusual that in a disenchanted culture that far and away the most popular stories in popular culture are about glorious, super-powered heroes who shine brightly and are amazingly special. If you have a look at this picture, there's a bit of transfiguration going on there, I think. Um, 
We, we're told about these people, about Jedi Knights filled with the power of the Force who glow. These are the, like billions of dollars a year are spent on listening to these stories. These people are special heroes above the ordinary world. And the real, getting superpowers is like being transfigured, isn't it? It's the same. It's a similar process. You know, there's something about that idea that is compelling. And I believe that's because we know the deeper and spiritual side of it to be true. You know? So the transfiguration of Jesus teaches us, though, that it's not just superheroes who are to be transfigured into glorious beings. This is the destiny and reality of all people in Christ to be filled with the Spirit of God and to shine with his glory. And in a hidden way, we actually are already, if we had the eyes to see it. Paul speaks about this, the Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He's speaking of those people who contemplate Jesus in their hearts, in his spirit. He says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So in the view of the Bible, then, what we think of as ordinary life and our natural and rational view of people is an illusion, which is caused by a lack of spiritual sight and vision. So love, and romantic love, begins sometimes to restore that sight to us. I think, um, and this is uh, probably alluded to earlier in, in Jerome's introduction, that the theme of this series we're doing on the Song of Songs is I think that God wants us to have hearts that are awake to him and alive to him. If we do then, if we pay attention to this and seek him, then Jesus is offering us the fruits of joy and the real experience of God in our hearts. That's what I think this book is about. And I think one of these experiences that we can have is to witness in our own lives and in the world around us, the transfiguration of the glory of God. And I think this is something that many very godly Christian people report, that as they draw closer to God throughout their lives, then the vision of the world that they have and of other people changes and they perceive the glory of God in all things. And this is one of the goals of the Christian life. And that is the destiny of all of us who follow Jesus, if not in this life, then certainly in the next to be glorious and to see glory. So the Song of Songs, I think, reminds us what the rest of the Bible confirms, that we are glorious, but not in an exclusive way like a superhero. All of us are. All of us are extraordinary. The world is a glorious place. And if we allow Christ space in our hearts, that is what we will come to see. And it will change how we view each other and how we treat each other. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a, a sermon on this topic, which he called The Weight of Glory. I'm going to read to you part of what he said in this. He says, It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory thereafter, hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too much, too often, or too deeply about the glory of his neighbour. The load or weight or burden of my neighbour's glory should be laid daily on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person that you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, 
all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. So I think the point today from what he's saying from Song of Songs is that when we love someone and when we are loved, we see something of what God has made us to be. Our value is not defined by what we achieve. Um, you know, we often feel a pressure to be extraordinary, to uh, achieve things that appear great by the standards of the world. That is actually a corruption of the reality of transfiguration, which is that there is no ordinary thing in God's eyes. The whole world is enchanted and everyone in it. As Psalm 19 says in its beginning, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. The entire creation speaks of the glory of God and everything in it. So a challenge for us today, I think, as we read the Song of Songs, is to look more carefully at that and to be less distracted by appearances, to be open to Jesus changing our perceptions and our own ability to manifest God's glory to the world. And he will. And when we worship here today, it's an affirmation that glory is real. And so let's continue in that time together. And we'll spend more time in worship now. Thank you.